So we are wrapping up our series, Doubting God. And we've covered a lot of things. We've covered a lot of different pieces of this idea that we can doubt God and, and it's okay to run into or bump into doubts related to our faith. In week one, we learned that our doubts don't disqualify our faith, meaning our doubts don't somehow mean that our faith is invalid. So we learned that in week one. We specifically learned it from the life of Thomas and what he did and how he doubted Jesus at the point of the resurrection, which, I mean, if we're not being too self-righteous, every one of us probably would have doubted the same way Thomas doubted. In week two, we learned with Peter that our failures don't disqualify our faith. And we see Peter, who was the rock on which Christ would build his church, consistently, over and over and over again, Peter failed. Over and over and over again, Peter disappointed Jesus, denied him three times. I mean, it's just one thing after another. Peter is just consistently failing God and failing Jesus. But that didn't disqualify his faith. In fact, we saw that God and that Jesus returned him to the brotherhood in the way that he restored him on the beach when they were eating breakfast together. So that was a big deal. And then last week, we asked the question, Uh, you know, can the Bible be trusted? And we learned that the Bible can be trusted to tell us the story of God. And if you didn't hear that, you need to go back and listen to the podcast on that one, because this one really is a part two of that. Because today, um, I've been looking forward to this one for a while, because this one is one that I really needed when I started in my faith about 10 years ago, um, when I first started going to church, started experiencing all this stuff. I really needed a message like this, but everybody was too afraid. The pastors were not comfortable speaking, talking about this, because it would be too contentious or cause issues inside of the church and as the body. So um, as we begin, have you noticed that there's always a tension with science and faith? Have you always noticed that it it, it tends to happen when you start to believe that, hey, I'm I'm more scientific thinking, well, then you you can't be faith involved. Or it's got to be very far down. You've got to take the Bible as kind of like a guideline. You know, God probably is an expression of something less than a real person, right? So if you've noticed, and I'm sure you've seen it before, especially if you've been to colleges, that there is a, a, a contention between science and faith, that somehow they, become, they have become a competition with one another. And I have felt that way too. When I first started in faith, I really was like that. I thought that, hey, in order for me to be a Christian, I had to leave my scientific and logic behind that I wasn't able to do that. And, and, and we see this all the time. And, and maybe you, you feel that way, that they can't interact together because you've run into uh, different viewpoints of Christianity. Because believe it or not, um, there are some things in this book that's up for interpretation, particularly in Genesis. In the very beginning, the biggest question is, hey, and those of you that are reading that book that I suggested last week, you know this, was did Genesis happen over the course of 24 hours? You know, each day was 24 hours? Or did it happen over the course of a long period of time? How do we know? The answer is we don't know. The answer is we, we, we don't know for sure, but what we do know is that in the beginning happened. Somebody say amen. So we know that it happened. We know that God ordered everything. We know that he put it all together. So we know that, but maybe the reason you feel like faith and science just can't connect with one another is because you've heard that it has to be seven days, seven 24-hour days. That's the only way, and anything less is, is your faith is shattered and you can't do it, right? Maybe you've 
uh, ran into that before. Maybe, maybe it was the theory of evolution that really kind of shattered your, your viewpoints on things. When if you really pay attention, there's nothing in the Bible that says that the concept of evolution can't happen. A species can change slightly depending on their environment in order to survive in their environment. And I would actually say that's more of the thumbprint of God on creation than it is anything that disproves God in creation. And we're going to get to that in a second. So I think what has happened is it's become less and less accessible or acceptable to think of science and faith interacting together. But you can do it. In fact, the predominant view up until the industrial, the scientific and enlightenment period was that science and faith interacted with each other. Back when they were figuring out science and mathematics and all the medical stuff they were learning back in, the seven, back in those time frame, that was all, it was, it, was normal time, it was normal thinking. In fact, St. Augustine, who's maybe you guys have heard of him before, he's a church father, about 400, 500 years after Jesus was crucified, he said this, he said, the conflict between science and faith comes from either misunderstanding science or misinterpreting the Bible. Now, let's just be honest for just a second. Some of us are guilty of that second one, aren't we? We've run into that. We've misinterpreted the Bible. Sometimes it's honest and it's just a mistake. You don't know any better. You're going to inherit some of the things your church taught you. You're going to inherit the things your parents taught you. That's normal. But for some of us, if I could just get up in your grill for just a second, if you'll let me step on your toes, um, and because we should be completely honest because we're in church. Some of us, probably at one point or another in our faith, have misinterpreted this on purpose to get it to fit our agenda. Probably happened once or twice. And when that happens, you run into the dangers of faith in science and faith in anything else not being able to interact with each other. Now, that's not the whole sermon. That, was, that one was for free. But we're not going we're to go there too much, too much today. But this idea that, Const, that Augustine talks about was the dominant view for 1,500 years until the scientific boom of the 1800s. This was normal. Science and faith, they interacted together. It was, very, it was just so, so normal. And I'm going to make the argument today, if I don't knock all of Heather's things over, I'm going to make the argument today that we can have both science and God. We do not have to have one or the other. It is not a, a singular system that you have to have one and you can't have the other. What if, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this, this thought, this thesis, what if the Bible and faith and science are actually meant to interact with one another? What if they are meant to be cooperative instead of competitive? What if we can figure out a way in which both things exist without any issues with one another the way that we constantly think. Instead of an either or, what if it's a both and situation? You do this all the time in your life. You, you, you have a both and all the time, right? A couple, couple weeks ago, we had Grayson and, and Zeke's birthday party. We had cake and ice cream, right? You have a peanut butter and jelly, right? You have salt and Right, eggs and bacon. bacon, there we go, amen. We are in an American church. Batman and Robin, right? And if you're married, you can Netflix and chill. Because <laughs> it's ordained by the Lord. If you missed that message, it's a couple weeks back. But we do this all the time. 
We do it all the time. We accept the both and they can exist together. I'm going to make the argument today that these are two different tools. Science fulfills one tool and the Bible and faith is a tool for something else completely. Think about it like this. It's a hammer. A hammer is designed to drive nails, okay, primarily. If you try to use a hammer on a wood screw, will it get the job done? Ish. It will get it okay, and it's going to, but it's going to look mangled. It's going to look messed up. You're going to mess some things up by doing that, right? If you start to use the wrong tool in the same way, if you try to take a screwdriver and beat a nail in, that's not going to work either. And maybe at the end of it, you're going to get some mangled, destroyed view of something. And for some of us, that's, for some of us, that's been our faith because we've been using the wrong tool. We've been using the wrong thing in the wrong place because science seeks the truth about our natural world, okay? Science seeks the truth about our natural world. Scripture reveals the truth about our supernatural God. They're two different things. They're designed to fulfill two different roles. They're cooperative, not competitive. I love the story of John Kavanaugh. He's a famous famous ethicist. I practiced that word probably seven times this week. And I still, it still got me. That he was an ethicist, and he was searching for his purpose in life. He was trying to figure out, you know, related to ethics and what's his purpose and what's the purpose for people and things like that. He visited Mother Teresa of Calcutta. You guys know her. Uh, and when he ran in to Mother Teresa, she, of course, because Mother Teresa said, hey, how, how can I pray for you? Because, you know, she was, she, was, she was it. And he says, um, uh, uh, yes, I would love for you to pray for me. And he writes it down in his journal. I, I would like you to pray for, for clarity because he's trying to figure out his purpose. Can you pray for clarity? And Mother Teresa had this to say. She said, clarity is the last thing you're clinging to, but you must let go of. And John goes, well, hold on, but it looks like Mother, Mother Teresa, I mean, come on, Mother Teresa, you have clarity. I mean, come on, you, you seem so clear. And he writes in his journal, she said, I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. And when we think Christianity is all about having the answers all of the time, we put our faith and set it up as a tool for it that it was never designed to be used for. We set it up for a purpose that it was never designed to be used for. Rather than building our faith on Jesus, we build our faith on a house of cards if we think Christianity is going to have all the answers for everything. That's not what Jesus said that he would come to do. That's not the point of Christianity. There's some great things that Christianity does reveal, that our faith does reveal, but science is a gift from our Heavenly Father to understand his creation to a greater degree. That's the whole point of it. And if one of our ideas about God is challenged, it doesn't mean that the entire faith has to come crumbling down. It simply means we need to unpack it a little bit. Maybe we need to research it. So real quick, show of hands, who remembers the scientific method from school? Does anybody remember that, right? Remember the scientific method? You remember, you remember this, you question something, you have a question about something, you put together a hypothesis, then you test it, and then you draw conclusions, right? I would argue that we need to start thinking of our faith or our ideas about faith uh, in that same way. 
that when that doesn't work, when you have a hypothesis and you put it together, you don't immediately give up on science, do you? Like, you don't, you don't like, try to figure out gravity and do a test, and then gravity didn't work the way you wanted it to, and you go, well, gravity's not, not real. Like, we don't do that. We don't do that anywhere else except when it comes to our faith. And it's because we don't feel like we have hard handles to grab a hold of all the time, but as I'm going to tell you in a second, I think we truly do. And when we experience challenges, our ideas about God can shift. We don't give up on God. That's not the answer. The answer is to explore it. The answer is to experience it. Go to the Bible and what Jesus said. If you have a question about God or you thought God was a certain way or you thought this was the way Christians were supposed to behave or whatever, and you bump into something that seems untrue or something that seems not right, do the scientific method to it. Ask the question, well, how should Christians act? Well, you know, I'm not sure. I thought it was A, B, C, and D. Well, let me go check what the Bible has to say. What did Jesus have to say about it? And let's see what he says there. And we can see all those things happen. And this produces a robust, growing faith. Listen to me. You do not need to have all the answers to follow Jesus. You don't. For many people, we feel like we have to. And I say we because I was that guy. I'm still that guy at times. Where I feel like, hold on, God, why didn't you explain this? And it comes back to what Mother Teresa said. I hope that we can trust God that he didn't explain it because we don't need to know it. Or maybe he didn't explain it because he wants us to discover it through science later in life and later in our race. See, 100% certainty is so rare. So rare. I mean, you guys remember, for a while, there was people that everybody thought the world was flat. I mean, there's still some of those people running around, right? But I mean, that was the general consensus. The world was flat. For a long time, when I was growing, when I was a baby, because I don't remember this, my mom told me, that we would get, that the whole thing was give babies formula, not breast milk. That's not more healthy. But now we found out that breast milk is actually more healthy. There was a period of time when my mom, because it was, the, it was what everybody said, I would suffer from ear infections as a kid, and she would smoke because everybody in the 90s smoked. And she would blow smoke in my ear because it would take the pain away. That's not good. <laughs> she didn't know any better. That's what everybody told her, right? And then for a while back before then, smoking was a good thing, right? I mean, they would advertise it. They talk about it all the time. Like smoking was considered healthy and a good thing. We're never going to have all the answers. And even when science says they have all the answers, I just gave you numerous occasions when they don't. And there's going to be more situations where scientific literature is going to come out and it's going to be different. Things are going to be wrong. You guys have seen this with the whole COVID thing over the past two years. We've seen scientific things say one thing and then another thing. And then as we study things more, you see things change all of the time. 100% certainty is very, very, very rare. So it relates to your faith. You're never going to have all of the answers, but that's okay because you weren't, you're not God. He has all the answers. It's always going to take a little bit of faith. It's always going to take a little bit of faith. But let's look at some places where science and scripture connect. So if you're with me, say I'm ready. Okay, good. Just want to make sure it didn't, everybody's not sleeping yet. So we talked about this last week. 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We learned that Genesis borrowed language, not stories, from, the cre- from other creation stories. So they borrowed language because it was language that the culture understood at the time. Chaotic waters, serpents, all that stuff. All that stuff is the language you're going to find in other creation stories. That does not even come close to saying those two things are the same because what's constantly different is the way that it happened. God did not need anything else. He just needed his voice. Somebody say amen. He didn't need to do anything crazy to set anything up. He just came in and said things, and it happened. There was, there was no, and then the other part is humanity didn't become a slave to the gods the way that they did in every other type of religion or every other type of co- uh, cosmology. For Christianity and for uh, Jews, it became we were to live with God. And that he wanted to have community with us, distinctly different from every other type of religion of that time. Every other type of religion of that time did not have anything close to that. So last week, we learned about the Big Bang. We learned about the beginning and the background cosmic radiation that we experience and everything like that, where we were able to measure time and get back to the idea of the Big Bang, where it says the universe had a beginning. And it sounds an awful lot like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You can hear the language of that day. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So when we think through this, and we kind of unpack it, it doesn't share a whole lot of similarities between other creation stories. Other creation stories, we talked last week how Marduk had to do some crazy stuff to get things set in motion. God says, let there be light. The nature of the creator is consistently different all across those stories, and our God stands out in the crowd. So the first thing I would say, we need to look at the design of the universe if we want to start talking about can we prove God. Because if you look from verses 3 to 31 in Genesis, you're going to see God put order to everything in creation. There's going to be order all across it. Think about how everything works together. Everything works together. You take a seed, you plant that seed. That seed is harvested by a farmer, becomes food for us, out the back end, back into the ground, provides nutrients to the soil. God provided order for everything, or as Mufasa put it, the circle of life. (laughs) But it is true that there's an order to everything that God put in the beginning. So in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth, and he put all of creation, everything, into a specific order. In my Old Testament class, when we were studying this kind of stuff, there's a common theme of God holding back the chaos and providing order. And you see it in every single day in the way things happen. When you drive home, think of all of the plants and animals and everything that you see in the ecosystems that exist together. There are eight ecosystems across this globe. They all work perfectly together. Eight different ecosystems. It's not like God had to get it right one time 
He had to get it right eight separate times for this globe to work the way that it does. Now, if that's not evidence enough, there are 26 fundamental universal constants, okay? These are required for our universe to even exist. Scientists have discovered these over the last 100 years. That if any one of these are out of whack, the universe can't hold itself together anymore. And this comes back to the idea of God pushing chaos away and bringing order to the chaos. So let's just look at, let's just look at our world. <clears throat> let's just look at the earth for just a second. So think about the creation and design of the universe. The earth is tilted at a 23.5 degrees. If we are off by one degree, one degree, you wouldn't feel it, except the seasons would change. The seasons would become far too extreme, and life is done everywhere on the earth. The moon, the moon actually helps hold us in that 23.5 degrees exactly. Minimal change over the thousands of years that we can track inside of this creation. So fine-tuned, fine-tuned for this to happen. If we spin, if the earth spins 10% faster, you wouldn't feel it except everything would be flooded. The oceans and the seas would take over all of the dry land, and everything would die. If the average distance of the sun, so our distance from the sun, if the average distance from the sun is off by a third of a percent, a third of a percent closer or farther away, we either burn up or we freeze to death. We are, this globe, this earth is perfectly positioned for life to function the way that it does. Not only that, not just regular life, but eight different ecosystems of life directly in position. In fact, Sir Roger Penrose, he's an atheist scientist, calculated the likelihood of the universe having such precise design from start to finish such precise design for Earth as we know it to hold life. This is just if Earth is the only thing that holds life, and we're not even going to get into aliens because then that's not church anymore. Let's put a tinfoil hat on and start talking about crazy stuff. But that's just Earth. So just Earth, right? Just for Earth to have, to have, uh, to have life. It's one in the tenth to the tenth to the 123rd power. In fact, this is how he describes it. He says, try to put one zero. So if you're trying to write that number out that I just said, that you would try to put one zero on every particle of the observable universe, you would be way short. That's how large that number is. It would span the entire known universe. Universe. You're more likely to win the lottery 10,000 times in a row and get hit by lightning every time you won. And the late Christopher Hitchens, he's an atheist apologetic, he argues and calls this the most compelling argument for God. The fine-tuning of the universe, in my opinion, is the thing that you can sit back and look at and just say, there's absolutely got to be something. And when you read the first chapter of this book, it tells you, he created it, he ordered it. Brandon, was it seven 24-hour days? I don't know, it doesn't matter. He created it, he ordered it. 
The rest of it, that's, that's, that's inconsequential, right? But we know that he created it and he ordered it in such an amazing way. In fact, it was David who recognized this. David wrote in the Psalms, he said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. That when we look at the creation and the fine-tuning of the universe, there is almost no chance that it happened by accident. And that it has stayed in place. The second thing that I'm going to ask you to look at when it comes to whether you can have faith in science and faith in logic is look at the resurrection of Jesus. So look at the fine-tuning creation of the universe. Look at the resurrection of Jesus. Christianity is the only falsifiable religion, which means it's based on the evidence of the resurrection. In college, I studied, it was part of my studies, called World uh, religions, and we studied all the different religions to see how they view things compared to how we do. Um, no other religion has a, a point that you can go back to, a public point that you can go back to and say, well, that's when it started to happen. They all have around areas and time frames in which it started to expand. I mean, Islam, you have to trust a private encounter that Muhammad had. And this encounter is unable to be tested historically or any other way. You just have to trust what one person said. The, the Mormons are the same way. We have no way of truly investigating the claims of John Smith. And even when we do, they're found pretty, pretty short. Buddhism and Hinduism, they're, uh, they're not historic faiths, meaning that they don't root themselves in an individual or a thing or an action or something like that. Uh, they don't have central claim uh, around the times. They instead just believe what they believe. You, you either adopt their philosophy or you don't. So you see Christianity is the one that if you could get to the resurrection, and people have tried this for hundreds of years, if you can get to that resurrection, you disprove the resurrection, it all falls apart. It all falls apart. It all comes crumbling down. And Paul knew that. That's why he wrote to the church in Corinth, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So if we can't, if we can't get to the resurrection, or if we can disprove the resurrection, we can disprove Christianity. Now, I'm sure you're not shocked that many people have tried to do that. There's been books written about it, tons of things written about it. Nobody's been able to disprove it. They've been able to go, I don't know. That's about as close as they're able to get. But there was a, an author, Gary Habermas, he put together <clears throat> the 12 minimal facts surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. Now, these facts had to go through some pretty strict scrutiny. They had to be strong and they had to be supported by multiple independent sources, so they couldn't just be one, one source. They had to be attested to by enemies and more likely authentic because enemies wrote them down. And they had to be somewhat listed in his hostile witnesses. Um, they, they had to claim embarrassing admissions as part of the Gospels. If you pay attention to the Gospels, there's a couple times where the, why would Peter even acknowledge that his faith was wanting at one point? They had to be strong when supported by eyewitness testimony, a couple different writings, a couple different people saying things. 
and they were supported by early testimony. Those were the requirements. I'm not going to go through all 12, so everybody take a deep breath. I'm not going to go through all 12. You get to do that homework on your own if you want. I'm going to go through what I think are the three most, really the ones that, that grab me. Fact one, the death of Jesus by, crucif- by Roman crucifixion. This has been proven over and over and over and over again that Jesus died by crucifixion. He died by crucifixion. He was crucified on a Roman cross. We have record of that. We know that. He was a real person, so if anybody that makes the argument that Jesus wasn't a real historical person, that argument has even been abandoned by the atheists for almost 15 years. So that's not an argument that they even think about anymore. So we know the first fact is he did indeed die by crucifixion. The second fact that we can put in is that there was an empty tomb. There absolutely was an empty tomb because nobody could produce a body. I mean, if you think back on the history of the church, the church is exploding in Jerusalem at the time. So if the church is exploding in Jerusalem at the time, it's in direct opposition to the temple and to the Roman viewpoints on all their gods, this new idea that you're going to worship Jesus and you're going to worship his father. I mean, this was totally different. When that thing came up and they wanted to put it into it, the only thing you have to do is produce a body. I mean, that's it. Go to the tomb. Where was he buried? Hold on. Pete, where was he buried? He's over there. Oh, okay, we'll just go over there and pull his body out. It's only been a couple days. He stank, but we'll get him out, and everybody will stop. No body. Not only that, we talked about this last week, there's no historical documents saying that it didn't happen. That would be evident. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Peter says he died and rose from the dead, and everybody sitting in Jerusalem should have been like, nope, he did not. But as we know, there were post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. One of the most compelling arguments, James, the brother of Jesus, post-resurrection appearance, he did not become a follower of Christ until he saw the resurrected Christ. The brother of Jesus, think about it like this, what would your brother have to do (laughs) to get you to believe he's the savior of the world? Some of y'all with siblings are like, that ain't never happening. I'm going to the grave unsaved, right? Like You're like, I ain't, I ain't believing that. No way. Her? No. Him? Mm-mm. James thought the same thing. Until his brother was crucified and walking around three days later. That's why we have the book of James. That's why historical documents point to James being the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because he's Christ's brother. That's why people were looking at him for leadership. And then there's the apostle Paul, or, Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, when it comes to post-resurrection appearances. When Paul was killing Christians in one regard, okay? Now, maybe there's not a whole lot of, so let me me clarify this. There's not definite historical evidence that Paul was the one that killed a Christian. You'll hear that argument from apologists. You're right, but we do have historical evidence that Paul was present at killings of Christians. Maybe he didn't throw the stone. Maybe he was the one righteous individual that didn't throw the stone. But we know he approved of the killing and he was in opposition to the Christian movement time and time and time again. But then Paul has an interaction with Christ in such a way that Paul walks away from his temple faith, he was a Pharisee, walks away from his temple faith, begins following Jesus, he's beaten 
broken, gone on three missionary trips, and then you just see him get put through the ringer, and Paul doesn't disclose or doesn't walk away from his faith. Then we see all the apostles. They swear they saw Christ. They just firmly believe that they saw Christ resurrected to the point where they all go to the grave believing that Christ had raised from the dead. And that's just three of the 12. So you go, okay, Brandon, what now? That was a really good TED Talk. We appreciate it. What now? I still have doubts. Well, we're going to live with unanswered questions. That's part of this experience. That's one of the best parts about this experience, if we're honest. If you know everything, life gets boring, right? I mean, come on. I don't want to know everything. I want to discover things along the way. So, and you're never going to know everything. There's going to be unanswered questions. I mean, I have unanswered questions every day that I either find answers to in faith, I find answers through, through study, find answers in all sorts of different ways. But remember how we started the series. Your doubts do not disqualify your faith. Because you doubt doesn't mean you don't have faith. It means you're searching. It means you're growing your faith. And doubts and questions are part of a growing and maturing faith. Besides, Jesus did not say that it would be by all the knowledge that my church has that people will know they're Christians. That's not what he said. In fact, Jesus never really talked about any of that, knowledge and knowing, things like that. He actually points to something totally different. When talking about his church, he says this, a new command I give you. And you hear us talk about this all the time. This is the platinum command. This is the thing, and you go, Brandon, you talk about that a lot. Yeah, Jesus said it. He made it very clear what our role is. He made it very clear what we're supposed to do. And we have to keep that front and center. He says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this. Not by your knowledge, not by your knowledge of the Bible, not by your knowledge of science, not by your great apologetics, not by your viewpoints of everything. And don't get me wrong, I love to talk about that stuff, just spent a whole, bit, whole sermon talking about it. But it's, that's not how people are going to know that you have faith. That's not how people are going to recognize you as related or connected to Jesus. He says it's going to be if you love one another. Doubts aren't a bad thing. And we're going to be discovering answers all along the way. So ask the hard questions. Don't run from them. Interact with them. Ask them. But in the meantime, love one another the way he loved us. And we will do, as Mother Teresa said, and pray that we trust in God. So, with that, let's close in prayer. Father, there is a ton of information out there today. There's a ton of claims out there today. And there's a lot of uh, agendas and viewpoints and thoughts on things, God, that just they, they aren't either always honest or sometimes they're 
they're not fully fleshed out. They're not fully studied. So Father, we pray that as it relates to us and to our faith, that we would acknowledge and recognize that we're not going to have all those answers in the God we don't have to. That it's always going to take faith. And yeah, it's fun sometimes to have messages like this and it's fun sometimes to have small groups like this where we talk about historical things and we talk about what we can prove and what we can't and we learn and we grow our faith in that regard and that's amazing. But it always takes a little bit of faith. Just a little bit of faith. Because we don't have to know everything to put our faith in Jesus. So, Father, we pray that you would build our faith through this message and through seeing the fine-tuning of the universe and seeing that the resurrection cannot be disproven. So, Father, we, we, we just pray that you would help us. And when we ask those hard questions, that you would sit with us and help us through as we grow in a deeper faith with you. Lord, we love you. We give you all of the praise in this place. And everyone said, amen.